a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome back. Well, I guess I'm welcoming myself back. I took a couple of days off. Thank you to those of you who noticed. <laughs> I mean, I try I try to keep things, you know, so when I when I slip a rerun in, it's not super obvious, but no, this this is fresh content today. Welcome aboard. Had a chance to do a little bit of traveling last week. It was it was so refreshing. Let me just give you a quick little slideshow here. Pull up a chair, and we'll tell you a little bit about what was going on. Uh, so uh, uh, my business partner, Joe Carey, and I took a little trip up to Salmon, Idaho, to visit one of the hosts uh, that we have. Uh, and it, his name is Rob Zender, and he has an incredible story to tell about uh, weight loss. Now, I don't know about you, but I... I haven't done uh, I haven't done justice to uh, keeping my my weight at its optimal level, which is a polite way of saying yeah I'm carrying about forty pounds more than I really should be. Rob has dropped over one hundred twenty pounds and is still dropping weight. So you know you want to talk about somebody who's got a, a story to tell. By the way, he's done all of this in about the last eight months. But uh, I'm not going to tell you so much about his story. You can you can find out more about his story. Um, I'll actually I'll throw a link into the show notes that uh, that can direct you to where you can learn more about uh, his journey. But I want to talk about uh, the little trip to Salmon, Idaho. Yes, Elmer Keith's old stomping grounds and just a, a beautiful little community of about three thousand people, far off the beaten path. And I'm only mentioning this because it was so remarkable in the sense that it it was like stepping back in time to a place, uh, well, pre-2020, pre-COVID-19. Now, this is not to say that uh, everybody that I ran into in Salmon, Idaho was, you know, carefree, mask-free and whatnot. I did see a few masks, but for the most part, um, pretty much everywhere I went, there were very few masks to be seen. It's, It's curious the more highly concentrated the population, the more likely you're going to start seeing masks and more likely you're going to encounter people who have, uh, how can I put this uh, diplomatically, strong feelings about masks. Like, wh- why is yours down below your nose kind of stuff. Didn't see any of that in Salmon. I just saw this beautiful little community. The thing that really struck me, too, is they had this thing there um, don't be shocked when I tell you about this because I don't know how many people. This is like this is like spotting a dinosaur. They have manners, and here's what I mean: when you go to cross the street in a crosswalk, of course, people actually stop. Yes, even semi trucks will stop for you as they're going through town and and allow you to pass. It's it is the most neighborly thing I've witnessed in a long time, and uh, I would say it went a long ways towards restoring my faith in humanity. Simply because. And people actually were treating each other like people rather than adversaries. And again, it seems like the more concentrated the population, the taller the buildings get, the more aggressive and impatient people tend to become with one another. 
So I basically just condemned every population center by this, but I'm just telling you this was my observation, and it was a really reassuring reminder to me that, uh, you know what, there are good people to be found everywhere. I just happened to stumble into a really notable collection of them, and uh, I feel better for having done it. So, it's great to be back in the saddle. We have a lot of important things to talk about. Um, I don't know about you, but I get this feeling sometimes that we're living in a kind of dystopian clown world. And it's it's like coming at us fast. And this is especially true when I look around at all the different quick, fear-driven policymaking. I came across an article this morning on LewRockwell.com. This is from Robert Higgs who, by the way, is is one of the the great commentators, one of the great truth speakers of our time, in that he is the one who, I believe, coined the the phrase the ratchet effect to describe how government policymaking will always ratchet in the direction of taking a few more of your freedoms, but when, when the crisis, that whatever crisis justified the taking of those freedoms, disappears... It doesn't quite go back to the normal that it was before. It's it's that ratchet effect. It just tightens it down a little bit more. Maybe you have felt this, particularly in the last year. Well, he has an excellent article here, 12 Myths Fueling Government Overreach in Times of Crisis. And I want to just run through a few of these and just see if any of them strike a nerve with you. Robert Higgs, writing for the Mises or, uh, Mises.org, says, Congress and the President have adopted many critically important policies in great haste during brief periods of perceived national emergency. Here's a few historical examples. During the first 100 days of Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration in the spring of 1933, for example, the government abandoned the gold standard, enacted a system of wide-ranging controls, taxes, and subsidies in agriculture, and set in motion a plan to cartelize the nation's manufacturing industries. Back in 2001, this is one most of us will remember, uh, the U.S. Patriot Act was enacted in a rush, even though no member of Congress had read it in its entirety. In September, or since September of 2008, rather, the government and Federal Reserve Systems have implemented a rapid-fire series of bailouts, loans, stimulus spending programs, and partial or complete takeover of big banks and other large firms, acting at each step in great haste. Now, Robert Higgs says, Any government policymaking on an important matter entails serious risks. But crisis policymaking stands apart from the more deliberate process in which new legislation is usually enacted or new regulatory measures are usually put into effect. And he says, because formal institutional changes, however hastily they may have been made, have a strong tendency to become entrenched, remaining in effect for many years and sometimes for many decades, crisis policymaking has played an important part in generating long-term growth of government through a ratchet effect in which temporary emergency measures have expanded the government's size, scope, or power. He says, it therefore behooves us to recognize the typical presumptions that give crisis policymaking its potency. And he says the 12 propositions given here express some of the ideas that are advanced or assumed again and again in connection with episodes of quick, fear-driven policymaking, even events whose long-term consequences are often counterproductive. Now tell me if any of these sound familiar. Let's start with number one. Nothing like the present situation has ever happened before. Remember, this is a myth. Robert Higgs says if the existing crisis were seen as the as simply the latest incident in a series of similar crises, policymakers and the public would be more inclined to relax, 
appreciating that such such rough seas have been navigated successfully in the past and will be navigated successfully on this occasion too. Fears would be relieved, exaggerated doomsday scenarios would be dismissed as overwrought and implausible. Such relaxation, however, he says, would ill-serve the sponsors of extraordinary government measures, regardless of their motives for seeking adoption of those measures. He says, fear is a great motivator, so the proponents of expanded government action have an incentive to represent the current situation as unprecedented and therefore is uniquely menacing unless the government intervenes forcefully to save the day. By the way, just as an aside, this is what I see playing out in places like, uh, like Australia and in the UK, where especially the, the COVID lockdowns are being very brutally enforced. And this is true in other European countries as well. We've seen it in some places in America, but two of the worst examples, Australia and Britain, you know, stand out in my mind. Number two, Robert Higgs says, unless the government intervenes, the situation will get worse and worse. That's the second myth. Crisis, he says, always presents some sort of worsening of something. The economy's output has fallen. Prices have risen greatly. The country's been attacked by foreigners. And he says, if such untoward developments were seen as having occurred in a one-off manner, then people might be content to stick with the institutional status quo. If, however, people project the recent changes forward, imagining that adverse events will continue to occur and possibly to gather strength as they continue, then they will object to a do-nothing response, reasoning that something must be done lest the course of events eventuate in an utterly ruinous situation. So to speed a huge, complex anti-terrorism bill through Congress in 2001, George W. Bush invoked the specter of another terrorist attack. Barack Obama, invoking the specter of economic collapse, rushed through Congress in early 2009 the huge Economic Recovery and Reinvestment Act before any legislator had digested it. In February, in a February 5, 2009 op-ed in the Washington Post, he actually wrote, If nothing is done, our nation will sink deeper into a crisis that at some point we may not be able to reverse. And at a February 9th press conference, he said a failure to act will only deepen this crisis and could turn the crisis into a catastrophe. So there are two of the 12 myths fueling government overreach in time of sub-crisis. We'll hit on a few of the others when we return just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing this article from Robert Higgs, 12 Myths Fueling Government Overreach in Times of Crisis. This is pretty powerful stuff. And, and look, this is not to tell you that therefore everything about COVID, it's, it's all wrong. Every bit of it. I'm not saying that, but as you listen to some of these myths, you're going to recognize, hey, I've heard that before, or maybe I'm hearing that right now. So take it with a grain of salt. You think it through. I'm not telling you you have to believe this. I'm just saying this is worth consideration. What you do with this information, though, that's entirely up to you. All right, myth number three. Today is all important. We must act immediately. 
Now, Robert Higgs reminds us in his first inaugural address, Franklin D. Roosevelt declared, This nation asks for action, and action now, and then proceeded directly to speak of the most terrifying problem of the day, mass unemployment. Our greatest primary task is to put the people to work. It can be accomplished in part by direct recruiting by the government itself, treating the task as we would treat the emergency of a war, but at the same time, through this employment, accomplishing greatly needed projects to stimulate and reorganize the use of our natural, sorry, national resources. In any event, the people want direct, vigorous action. Now, similarly, not long after taking office, Barack Obama similarly declared, not long uh, after that, the, the situation is getting worse. We have to act and act now to break the momentum of this recession. <clears throat> he said, doing nothing is not an option. The situation we face could not be more serious, and we can't afford to wait. Now, in his February 5th op-ed in 2009, he began listing a series of objectives he claimed the pending legislation would achieve. And he began four successive paragraphs with the words, Now is the time to. So I guess watch for those words. Yeah, pay attention. When you hear a government official saying that, there's a good chance that uh, they're, well, they're perpetuating a myth. Myth number four, government officials know or can quickly discover how to remedy the problem. Higgs says all government policies adopted to meet a crisis presume that the government knows how to affect the rescue it seeks. Now, the government officials may sometimes admit, as in the early New Deal, that it does not know exactly how to proceed, yet it maintains that doing something is better than doing nothing. Roosevelt maintained that the government ought to try something, and if that measure failed, then try something else. Thus, ignorant flailing about on the assumption that doing something has no costs, adverse effects, or untoward long-term consequences has been touted as a virtue. And indeed, many members of the public, no more expert than the government itself, have agreed the government has to try something. We certainly saw that in spades over this last year. Myth number five, we may may safely rely on the establishment and on its insiders for expertise in this crisis. As a common first step to reacting to a crisis, the government often assembles a council of experts or some such group of wise men and women. These experts are invariably drawn from the government itself and from groups with whom the government maintains cozy relations. The experts frequently include those who had responsibility for carrying out the government policies that contributed to the occurrence of the crisis in the first place. So no matter how ill-fated monetary policy may have been, the government will call on the Secretary of the Treasury and the head of the Federal Reserve System to decide, along with others perhaps, what should be done next. In this constructed circle, the range of possible future actions the government might take is almost always no wider than the range of actions taken in the past. Hence, the experts are subject to repeating the same errors time and again. By the way, we're going to talk a little bit about Dr. Fauci and his 300 media appearances in the last year. Speaking of, you know, house experts. Myth number six, we may trust the government to act responsibly, responsibly rather, and effectively on the basis of the expertise they command. The public looks to government officials and their assembled wise men to act in the government, or to act in the public interest rather, and to organize their actions in an effective manner. Now, if the policymakers lack the requisite knowledge, then such trust is bound to be misplaced. Because no matter how responsibly the policymakers may try to be, 
They simply don't know what they're doing. If they do have the requisite expertise, however, they may still fail to act on it because of their political, ideological, or personal interests and connections. So the public tends to think of crises as akin to mechanical problems. The car's engine's not running. Policymakers need to give it a jump start. Robert Higgs, however, says crises are rarely so simple. More often, they involve far-reaching relationships among many individuals, groups, and nations, and the lack of productive coordination that the crisis represents can seldom be restored by simple policy actions such as, well, the government ought to double its spending and rely on borrowed funds to cover its budget deficit. He says complex political, social, and economic breakdowns rarely take a form subject to easy treatment, activist policymakers, you know, to, to easy treatment from activist policymakers, though he says many of them can take care of themselves if only policymakers will stand aside from them. <clears throat> myth, myth number seven. The clear benefits of quick government action may be assumed to outweigh its costs and its actual or potential negative consequences. He says crisis decision-making isn't characterized by careful attempts to justify actions on a cost-benefit basis. If the situation is dire, policymakers and many members of the public simply assume that a policy with a positive net benefit may be adopted. Little basis exists for this assumption, though. He says even in a crisis, government may take many actions whose costs and risks greatly outweigh any benefit they may bring. The potential is great for focusing on benefits that are immediate and visible while disregarding costs that are, de- that are delayed and less easily perceived. Thus, policymakers are likely to plunge almost blindly ahead where more calculating angels fear to tread. Myth number eight, fact-finding, deliberation, study, and debate are too time-consuming and must be foregone in favor of immediate action. In April 1932, a year before the momentous explosion of New Deal measures after Roosevelt took office, Felix Frankfurter complained in a letter to Walter Lippmann that one measure after another has been hurriedly concocted. They've been dominated, they, they have been denominated emergency efforts, and any plea for deliberation, for detailed discussion, for, for exploration of alternatives has been regarded as obstructive or doctrinaire or both. The events of the spring 1933 congressional session raised all of these attributes by an order of magnitude. And Higgs says President Obama likewise declared that enough debate had occurred on the massive stimulus package, even though it had been rushed through both houses of Congress, neither of which paused to hold hearings on it. We can't posture and bicker. Endless delay and paralysis in Washington in the face of this crisis will only bring deepening disaster. I mean, this is this is classic used car salesman. Sign now before it's too late. Hurry, I've got five other people looking at this. We can't afford to wait. Myth number nine. Existing structures and incumbent firms must be preserved. New structures and firms are unthinkable. Higgs says existing office holders, bureaucrats, firm managers, and owners have a decisive political advantage over possible alternative occupants of their positions. In other words, new entrants. Hence, the overriding theme in any crisis is that current politicians and capitalists must be preserved, propped up, bailed out, subsidized, whatever it takes to save them and their present organizations. Does that not sound like the massive stimulus bills and spending bills being proposed by the current administration? Higgs says, in truth, however, the best way to to deal with some crises is by getting rid of the persons and organizations that helped bring them on. Bankruptcy, for example, is not the end of the world. It's simply the end of existing stockholders. 
If a company still possesses valuable assets, they will be transferred to new and presumably more competent managers. All right, just a couple quick ones here. You can check these out for yourself at in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Myth number 10, if a policy is not getting the results its proponents promised, more money should be poured into it until it finally works. Myth number 11, we must not be deterred by the accumulation of public debt. There's no practical limit to the amount government may safely borrow. And finally, the occasion demands that policymakers put aside partisan or strictly political maneuvering and act entirely in the general public interest, and we can expect them to act accordingly. Those are all myths. Again, check them out in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out to the sponsors of my program. They include HSLAmmo.com, also Pure Light, that's pure-light.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. There are links provided in the show notes at my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You can check them out for yourself. So are you hearing the word equality a lot these days? I've heard, you know, I've heard equality and I've also heard equity, which I think people use interchangeably with it. And as much as the word equality is being used, it certainly does not mean the same thing to everyone. Some people want equality of opportunity. Others want equality of outcome. These are very different animals. I mean, it's it's a true apples-oranges comparison. So what would be an equality worth defending? Gary M. Gallus has a great article. This is published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. It's a review of James R. Audison's new book, Seven Deadly Economic Sins. And this is what Gary Gallus has to say. He says, in our Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson wrote of self-evident truths that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and condemned government that was destructive of those ends. Now, Gary Gallus says, given how important that document was with its signers putting all of those ends at risk, there had to be a high level of agreement about what created equal meant, sadly, with the exception of slaves. Since then, however, discussion of equality has become a source of confusion and contradiction. But he says, fortunately, a new book by James Audison, Seven Deadly Economic Sins, offers a means of returning the discussion back toward clarity and a form of equality that's consistent with both moral philosophy and our declaration. He calls it the foundational principle of equal moral agency. And when he combines it with what could be called first-month principles of economics, because they're all introduced at the beginning of every introductory economics class, he finds over and over again government violating that foundational principle. So identifying equal moral agency as the central defensible meaning of equality from both moral philosophy and our declaration is important. One reason for this is because those who have had great faith in liberty have long sought finding words for common sense, as Leonard Reed put it in his article by that name. Because the language of liberty is strange to ears long attuned to the notions, cliches, and plausibilities of statism, interventionism, socialism. It's true. By the way, it's like you're speaking another language. 
And Gary Gallus says a long part of that search has been to offset misrepresentations that still dominate much of America's political discussion and huge swaths of government actions. Take the word capitalism. The term misrepresents voluntary exchange systems by implying that capitalists are the only real beneficiaries. When consumers for whose business the capitalists must compete are the greatest gainers. People from politicians to the Pope tend to see crony capitalism as, the, as a form of capitalism when it is in fact a denial of one of capitalism's central aspects. Similarly, free markets, free trade, economic freedom as descriptors have been undermined by the fact that markets have rules which must sometimes be enforced on members. Promisers are constrained to live up to their commitments and exchanges come at a cost which provides ample room for distortion. For example, Nicole Jelinas's fake capitalism or Ayn Rand's capitalism, the unknown ideal, or you can search other terms for capitalism online. Efforts to clarify why the ways of freedom make sense have included Deirdre McCluskey's suggestions of technological and institutional betterment at a frenetic pace tested by unforced exchange among all the parties involved. Market-tested betterment or innovism. Huh, there's a new word. But he says, I particularly like Leonard Reed's Anything That's Peaceful from his most famous book of the same name and his distinction between willing and unwilling exchange. In Chapter 5 of his 1967, Deeper Than You Think. <clears throat> but whatever term <clears throat> excuse me, is offered to improve clarity, Gary Gallus says it's hard to argue against the fact that distortions are still far more common in today's world. Further, he says, think of how distorted equal has become. Audison addresses this issue in his chapter, Equality of What? With reference to Nobel laureate uh, Amartya Sen. As Audison puts it, Sen argues that various definitions of equality entail one conception of equality only at the expense of others. Hence, there is no such thing as advocacy for equality full stop. We have to specify which kind of equality we want, then we have to explain why that specific kind of equality should be advanced above the others. In particular, he singles out one particularly popular and influential conception of equality, namely equality of resources, as one that is undesirable and even potentially harmful. In the following pages, he says Audison expands on the trade-offs between differing meanings attached to inequality, leading him to, a, to equality, rather. I don't want to make you think I'm saying inequality. The meanings attached to equality, which leads him to his discussion of equal moral agency as an equality worth defending. And while he develops the idea and implications throughout his book, a core argument appears on pages 204 through 206. This is an excerpt from it. Quote, there is, one type of, there is one kind of equality that is consistent with treating all human beings as unique and precious beings of dignity, deserving respect, and that, by a stroke of amazingly good luck, is also consistent with the institutions required to enable growing prosperity. That kind of equality is equality of moral agency. That means we must respect others' ends, their values, and their preferences, as well as the actions they take on the basis and in the service of them. None of us should infringe on others' agency, and no one should infringe on ours. We must all have an equally expansive scope of agency that is an equality able to be defended not only logically, but morally. End quote. Now, Gary Gallas explains here, such a form of equality requires particular public social institutions which must protect what, just, what Audison calls justice, or the three Ps of person. No one may assault, kill, or enslave us. 
So, person is the first one. Property, no one may confiscate, steal, trespass upon, or destroy our property. And promise, protect our voluntary associations, contracts, obligations, and promises so that no one may defraud us of our time, talent, or treasure. So, the three Ps, person, property, and promise. He says, the major implication is that morality requires respecting others' opt-out option. That means the only exchanges we may make are cooperative and that moral equality is a two-way street. This is so powerful in, in so many aspects. And when you see people trying to force an outcome because I know what's best for you, that is absolutely flying in the face of that morality that allows people to make those choices themselves. Gary Gallus says, Audison also offers excellent, excellent discussions on how the concept of equal moral agency can help us evaluate claims that we should value people over profit, that voluntary market arrangements are about selfishness rather than cooperation, and that markets produce dependence rather than interdependence, as well as other issues. Audison's discussion, he says, also draws out that economics is crucial to enabling a flourishing life of meaning and purpose and proper relations among people. In other words, in, in other words, in its essence, it's moral. In fact, he calls economics essential to achieving not just a rational economic order, but to achieving a rational moral order. So in a world where what often seems to matter to people is what moral values policies represent, and the criticisms of individual rights and economic freedom are often made on the basis of its supposed moral failings, Gary Gallus says this book is welcome as a thoughtful, respectful, yet powerful response. And the idea of equal moral agency as a universal standard moves us a long way toward a better understanding of both markets and morality than what surrounds us today. And his conclusion says it well, quote, If we value other people as much as we value ourselves, we should give others a wide scope of individual liberty and responsibility as is consistent with the same scope we and everyone else enjoy. Only in that way can people find innovative, productive, and creative ways to improve their own lives in willing cooperation with others, and only in that way can we all get better together. This is a great way of, of illustrating how connected economics is with freedom, or at least free market economics is with, uh, with freedom. And yes, I definitely lean to the Austrian economic side of, of the equation. I'll have a link to Gary Gala's article in the uh, show notes, which you can check out at thebrianhydeshow.com. I always uh, give those notes with a few annotations here and there, just in case you're interested, and encourage you to uh, read them, check them out for yourself. There are a lot of great looks or great links rather within these these various articles that I share. And, you know, you're only limited by, you know, how deep do you want to dive? How far do you want to dig to get to the truth? And I'm making an assumption here, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the fact that you are listening to this broadcast uh, it seems to indicate to me that you're, you're willing to go beyond, you know, just uh, having someone spoon-feed you the talking points. Okay, here's what you're supposed to believe today. Come on, here comes the airplane, zoom, right to your mouth. I, I don't need to spoon-feed you. I think you're a rational-thinking human being. I'm just here to give you a couple of things to consider, maybe point out a direction that I found productive. But ultimately, the battle for your mind, you get to decide who wins. Choose carefully. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I can't tell you how good it is to, to be able to jump back behind this microphone and to share a few thoughts that I hope uh, translate into intellectual and philosophical ammo that helps bring clarity to your understanding of the world as well as uh, strengthens your understanding of how much control and power you actually have just by uh, exercising your own volition. You know, for, for, for people to, to have control of you, they have to have your consent. And I'm not telling you disobey at every turn. I'm just telling you think before you give that consent. Sometimes the people who are telling you, I need your consent or I need you to do this, aren't always doing it in your best interest. Case in point, you know, there's a lot of push right now for gun control. There's, there's no aspect of gun control that, that uh, the media isn't willing to hype. Oh, look, something bad happened. Why, this must mean it's happening everywhere. It's not. In fact, I'm going to include in today's show notes a great article from Kent McManigle. This guy is a fountain of common sense. And his article, Gun Control Based on Lies, is worth considering. He says, if you have a better idea, share it and convince people it's a good idea. If you can't convince them with the truth, that should be the end of it. Now, if you can't let it go and decide to force everyone to go along with you, you'll use politics to make them do something you couldn't talk them into doing. In other words, you'll cheat. There are different ways this can be done. You can let Congress make up new legislation, but this is hard and it takes a long time. These days, a president will often just declare, it is so, and skip all the constitutional safeguards, which truthfully don't often protect your rights from government anyway. Presidents like this method because it gives them the power to impose their will unilaterally. There used to be a word for political rulers who did this, but it seems to have been removed from public conversation since January. By the way, just as a quick aside... The word is tyranny, and actually I saw, I saw this word used uh, yesterday for the very first time describing people like me and presumably like you who are, quote, tyrannophobic. Now, you know, a phobia is an irrational fear of something, but uh, gee, what do you have to fear from tyranny? I mean, come, you tyrannophobic people, what's wrong with that boot on your neck? I don't understand why you people are so hard to get along with. Anyway, back to Kent McManigal. He says executive orders and their pale cousins' executive actions are how recent presidents have managed to violate the natural human right to own and carry weapons without bothering to go through the still crooked and unconstitutional legislative steps. By the way, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, which should be the name of a convenience store, not a government office, uses a similar trick. The Second Amendment makes it a crime for government to make up any rules about weapons. Since the courts are controlled by government, they usually allow this crime to go unchecked. It doesn't excuse the criminal act of gun control when courts allow it to happen. Congress, the president, bureaucrats, judges, and all other political people are forbidden to violate any of our natural human rights. They do it anyway, and they get away with it almost every time. They cheat and lie until they get what they want, and most of the public is okay with it. People get scared and don't understand the issue because of the lies told by national media corporations and politicians. So here's the gist of it. Kent McManigal says all gun control is based on lies. It doesn't make anyone safer. It isn't the government's job to tell you what you're allowed to own or how and where you can carry it. There is no authority for government to require background checks or permits or licenses. Those who do it anyway are cheating. They're cheating you out of your rightful liberty. And he asks, why put up with it? 
I really enjoy Kent's writing, and I would I would strongly recommend follow the link in today's show notes at the Brian um, I I get uh, articles from uh, everything voluntary.com on a daily basis. They come to my inbox, and Kent is one of the regular contributors. He also has his own blog. Definitely a guy who can can give you a nice shot of uh, a good a good reality supplement. If you're tired of dealing with the the lies and misrepresentations that uh, so much of the media seems to prefer. All right, a final note here. At the risk of being labeled a denier, I'm going to confess that I have no faith whatsoever in what Dr. Anthony Fauci has to say. Now look, he may be a darling of the media, but he's also doing a pretty good impression of a pseudoscience propagandist who remains very blind, willfully blind, to the millions of lives he is helping to destroy. Found a great article from Jordan Schachtel that explains what we can learn from Fauci's 300 media appearances in the last year. This is courtesy of the American Institute for Economic Research. He says, for decades, Anthony Fauci was an unrecognizable government bureaucrat to anyone who lived outside of the D.C. Beltway. He would pop up out of obscurity and into the conversation every few years in the event of a niche issue involving infectious diseases. That all changed with the COVID-19 pandemic, which elevated the once irrelevant Mandarin to stardom. Today, he is a media mainstay. The celebrity doctor has become best known for his routine peddling of quackery related to the coronavirus and who's developed a cult following thanks to his consistent political activism and regular appearances across a plethora of media platforms. The National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, where Fauci's held a top post, the top post, for 38 years, now accommodates their celebrity doctor by maintaining a dedicated list of his media appearances. Scroll through Fauci in the News tab on the NIAID website, and you will find page after page of Dr. Fauci's seemingly endless schedule of media hits. He says, by my count, he's accumulated well over 300 media appearances the past year alone. And a week ago Sunday, Fauci got a high dose of his television fix, racking up four separate TV appearances on ABC, CNN, CBS, and NBC. Now, the partial list, which was updated on April 19th, shows that Fauci has collected 309 media appearances just over the last year alone. By by comparison, back in 2019, Fauci made about one media appearance per week. Additionally, the Fauci in the news list doesn't account for many of his appearances on random celebrity YouTube channels, podcast hits, radio interviews, live-streamed conferences, and the like, which easily send his average media hits over the past year to well over one appearance per day. When Anthony Fauci isn't in front of a camera, he's said to be on the front lines battling the pandemic as the nation's foremost infectious diseases expert a label that somehow justified his by his track record of being a government bureaucrat for half a century. However, other than working his way up the ranks of a government bureaucracy and using crafty political maneuvers to build his personal status in Washington, D.C. and around the world, it's unclear what exactly Fauci has accomplished to deserve this label. With all that time in front of a camera, it might make some wonder if the celebrity bureaucrat has time to actually follow the latest data and statistics on the pandemic. Given his routine blunders, his lack of transparency, and his advocacy for continued shutdowns, there are, over, there are over 50 published scientific studies now that show lockdowns don't work. It's safe to say that the NIAID director is either ignorant and clueless or purposely advocating for measures that do not work to stop the, bread, the, the spread. Rather. 
And he's got a couple of nice links here to a couple of tweets that, that seem to bear this out. My favorite was when he was asked, uh, when Fauci was asked, why Texas, with no statewide restrictions, hasn't seen a surge in COVID cases this spring, unlike other states? His answer was, well, it's not the mandates that matter, it's behavior, and Texans are simply behaving better than people in Michigan. Yes, there's a link to that. So, coming back to Jordan Schachtel's article, he says, good news doesn't control people, which is why Fauci has become exclusively known as the bearer of bad news. Good news is not particularly good for ratings, nor is it good for the prospects of other another exclusive appearance with Brian Stelter or Chuck Todd. So Fauci prefers to keep viewers afraid, malleable, and on edge. In media hit after media hit, Fauci predictably reminds viewers that there is supposedly an active or imminent crisis in the works. Without a perpetual crisis to shine a light on, the cameras may turn in another direction. Fauci, a seasoned operative, wants the show to continue. When the virus wasn't scary enough, surely the double mutant virus would keep people compliant. When people started accommodating the COVID vaccine, Fauci pulled the rug out from under them and openly speculated about the possibility of variants avoiding the vaccine, thereby making you vulnerable once more. He concludes by saying, Fauci is having the best year of his life. It has become clear that he desperately wants the show to continue, even if that means demanding that tens of millions of people suffer by conforming to his pseudoscience-based edicts. The TV doctor sure knows how to drive ratings with the hopes that this is just season one of his long-running hit pandemic series. Smack. <laughs> That's, that one's going to leave a mark. Jordan Schachtel, again, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. And again, I'm, I'm going to have to say, I'm not telling you you have to believe every word that Jordan Schachtel has written here, but I'm saying... There's, there's enough plausibility. This is worth a closer look. And a lot of what he's writing here rings very true to me. As I see Dr. Fauci, I see no reason to put faith in him or what he is saying or what he is demanding. It just seems like this is, this is a politicized expert who has attached his expertise to somebody else's agenda. And that agenda seems poised to exert greater control over you and me at virtually every level of our lives. I'm not inclined to let that happen, at least not without some resistance. This is The Brian Hyde Show.